If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Welcome back to Empire. I am William Dalrymple. And I am still Anita Arlind. <laughs> Nothing changed. Nothing has changed with that. So we have just got the Coedor uh, onto the steam sloop Medea. Uh, and this cursed diamond is crossing the waves at speed uh, towards Great Britain and Queen Victoria. But you won't be surprised to hear... Uh, that it is not an easy voyage. No, it really, really isn't an easy voyage because just days into this voyage, and we're talking now, just to, to remind you of dates here, this is April 1850. So it is crossing the water only a few days in. The first person falls down dead. With, with <laughs> Then <cholera>. another, then <laughs> another, cholera has broken out on a ship. Now, that is a death knell. For a ship at sea because people are at close quarters they cannot quarantine or separate so it can take out an entire crew so there's panic on the ship as well on the Medea and Lockyer says look don't panic don't panic boys it's okay don't panic nobody panic we are very very close to Mauritius so we will go and we will disembark on Mauritius really not far I mean honestly this is just nonsensical so we'll be fine we'll get to Mauritius and we'll be okay they get to the territorial waters around Mauritius and Mauritius trains their guns on this ship saying, I'm sorry, plague ship. <laughs> Do you think you're coming up? You're not. Uh, and if you come any closer, we will fire, we'll torpedo you out of the sea. And well, the equivalent, we'll shoot you out of the sea. Oh, what would you say? Cannon you out of the sea? Oh, what, blow the you, blow the you sea, out yeah. of the sea. Okay, we will blow you out of the sea. Um, so this panic-stricken crew cannot disembark they can't separate from each other all mauritius will do is send them a, a modicum of water fresh water a little bit of medicine not very much and a, a few provisions and poor Ed Lockyer has to say okay boys <laughs> onwards it's okay don't panic don't panic we're going to make this we are made of stern stuff we're going to be fine well i mean one presumes so we don't, don't have detailed medical accounts from this apart from the references to cholera in the first few days of the outbreak and the mauritian's reaction to it but then Lockyer says right well, we're going to go on it's going to be fine it's going to be fine it's going to be fine they sail into one of the worst typhoons in a decade <laughs> which almost breaks they say the, the 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 mainsail so you know this poor ship is battered buffeted everyone thinks first of all they're going to die of cholera then they think they're going to drown at sea and it carries on and it limps on and it limps on and it finally this beleaguered ship reaches british territorial waters and the sailors must have been like oh well, thank goodness never thought this would happen and the first of the Koinor's malign acts begins to uh, begins to unfold on British soil. Well, isn't it odd? Because it just enters British territorial waters, and the the first of a number of unfortunate incidents <laughs> takes place. So Robert Peel, who's a former Prime Minister of Great Britain, and who is also a favourite of Queen Victoria because he's so very kind to Prince Albert. I mean, he's one of their their chief allies. When Albert's not very popular in the court, it is Peel who paves the way to make him acceptable in the British court. Peel is an experienced horseman. 
He is out riding on Constitution Hill and he is thrown by his horse, which is weird and unfortunate. But the horse then trips over Peel and falls on Peel, <laughs> which and is him. and kills him, which is just bizarre. And this is the that day that the, the ship has entered British territorial British territorial waters, waters. Uh, as if that is not odd enough. So anyway, the ship the ship unloads its its precious cargo, and it's only then that the crew find out what is what is on board the ship, and they must go, "Oh my, that's what it was! This damned stone was trying to drag us all to hell." Um, a fast rider with members of the uh, East India Company as retinue do a ride to London. They've got to get the stone to present it to Queen Victoria. As it's getting closer, it's like just a day out from reaching Queen Victoria. And she's attacked by a lunatic in the crowd, a, a man called Robert Francis Pate, while she's visiting her uncle in London, leaps out of the crowd and hits her over the head. It's sort of deemed to be quite a bungled either assassination attempt or or the act of a madman. But he slams her over the head with a metal-tipped cane. So when she finally does accept the Koh-i-Noor, she does so with a massive shiner. She's got a black eye, which maybe explains <laughs> why she's not... If you look at her diary entries, because Queen Victoria is a great diarist, when she writes about the Koh-i-Noor, it isn't with... Any that great excitement. much enthusiasm. It also explains why not long after this, you get Wilkie Collins writing The Moonstone, because these stories begin to circulate. T- tell people the... about The Moonstone, because not everyone will have read it. So The Moonstone is supposed to be the first ever detective story, and it's the story of a cursed Indian gem which comes to Britain and that creates havoc around it and then is stolen. Uh, and uh, and it turns out that the people who've stoned it are the, the, the stone's original guardians who, who bring it back to India. And the novel closes with the stone back in the idol. In, uh, An in, idol. In, I mean, uh, you know, yeah. it's a sort of very loosely disguised version uh, of the code. And so... The, what's fascinating is that this is a trope which you know then enters European and British and European literature, and we get cursed stones as you know in, as late as Tintin uh, in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. But the origin of it is not just the Kohinoor itself, but a whole trope in ancient Indian literature where diamonds are considered to be inauspicious, going right back to the Bhagavad Puran. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you know the first episode that we've done on, on this podcast is filled with, with all of that mythology, if you want to go back, if you hadn't, haven't listened to it But this yet. begins to circulate in, in the British press. And the British press is, on one hand, very excited that this symbol of empire uh, and the symbol of the bounty of India. And, and it's, I think, quite important to sort of think back to that time, because today, um, I think people are very aware that you know, looting, colonial loot, loot in war is a very bad thing. There's been a lot of reporting from Ukraine about the Russians taking stuff from from museums in uh, in southern Ukraine. There's also been a, obviously a huge amount of uh, there are movies, there are novels, there's whole um, libraries written on the Nazi looting of uh, of Jewish art mm. treasures during the Second World War. Um, the Italians are, are obsessed about Napoleon pinching their art treasures and taking them to the Louvre. And um, one of the things that you know all this raises is: is is there any moral distinction between the Nazis taking a fantastic uh, a Chagall or, or, or some extraordinary art treasure from uh, a, a, a house in the Warsaw Ghetto in nineteen? 19- mm. 40 or 1941, uh, and uh, the British running off with the Kohinoor or the throne of Ranjit Singh or any of the other things that lie around the V&A or the British Museum uh, in the 19th century. And 
we'll come back to this at the we end will. of this issue. But it, it's just, I think, worth placing this here that this is, you know, this is very tricky territory. And while it makes a very jolly narrative, and 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 you know, you and I have greatly enjoyed researching this story and the uh, and all the the dark incidents that are alleged to be mm. uh, around the stone. Some directly connected with the stone. Some like the cholera. You know, possibly a completely. Um, accidental uh, happening. Nonetheless, this is something which impacts on the British public, and 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 they and they are very excited about the arrival of the stone. And the stone's great apogee comes shortly after. Oh, it does, it, it does. But just I mean, just before that, I mean, you're absolutely right about this kind of you know the swirling mythology of the Kohinoor and its curse is is so prevalent at this time, not just among the British people. But the monarch. <laughs> so Queen Victoria gets really quite nervous about taking possession of this this diamond. And there are letters that are going back and forth from Queen Victoria to India. Is it cursed? Is this thing cursed? Is it cursed? Can you please assure me that it's not cursed? And lots of old India hands write letters. I think Richard Burton, for example, the, the, the great explorer of the, the Hejaz and one of the sort of archetypal Raj sort of adventurers, he, he, he sends letters to the monarch at this point. Mm. Uh, and, and so all these old India hands are sort of brought out of their clubs yes, and dusted, yes, dusted down. dusted off. And can, can she wear it? <laughs> can, can she, she wear it? it? Is it all right? Yeah. And, and at one point, Dalhousie gets so frustrated by this <laughs> nonsense as he sees it. You know, why is she not grateful? Dalhousie why am I not? Yeah. Why am I not prime minister yet? I gave her the big. That he actually writes that you know if she doesn't want to give it back to me, <laughs> I, I will wear it on speculation. It just give it to me. This um, is like Frodo and the Ring of Power or something. But also it's yeah. around. I mean, just uh, it, I think we've forgotten to mention that the, the potted history of the Kohinoor was actually for the British created by a man who was not a historian. Can we talk about it's a the Because this is exactly, yes. this is the point yeah. to which. So when Dalhousie gets his hands on the Kohinoor, he wants to know, like everybody else, not only is there a, is there a curse, but you know, what is the story of this gem? Mm. And as, the, as he knows that the Kohinoor was originally part of the Mughal Treasury. I don't think he knows it was part of the of the Peacock Throne, but he knows that at some point the Mughals possessed it before Nadir Shah took it. He writes to a young East India Company official who's very interested in gems, and he knows this guy because he's a friend of his father called yeah. Theo Metcalf. And Theo Metcalf is a slight wastrel. He's he's he 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 gets into trouble uh, with women, with dogs and horses. He I mean, sounds perfect <laughs> to write a detailed history. Perfect. <laughs> well, exactly. He's not necessarily your first choice. <laughs> Uh, and it's he that then goes around the because the Red Fort, it, the Mughal Empire, is still going in on very much its last legs. Uh, but until 1857, we're now in the 1840s. Uh, it's still there, and the Mughal Emperor is there, and all his princes are there. So Theo is sent up to the Red Fort to interview the treasurers of Chandi Chowk, mm. the keepers of the Mughal uh, Toshakana and the, uh, 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 the, the various experts and gems, but also the princes and princesses about the stories of the Kohinoor. And a lot of the legends of the Kohinoor come from the document that he produces. There's one copy of it still surviving in the Indian National Archives, which I read when I was writing the first thing I, I it got was, my hands. I mean, it was yeah. so exciting when you found the Metcalf thing, which is, yeah. you know, uh, in nine parts garbage. <laughs> and it's in nine parts garbage, but it's, it is, yeah. nine parts garbage is, is what... It's the, fascinating, but it informs... It's what's informed everything that's come... And, up, and up it informs the, 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 the sort of the neurosis in the royal court of can I yeah. wear... I mean, they're also... Actually, it's a two-pronged thing because Queen Victoria is also acutely sensitive of the deposing of kings. Yeah. So, you know, what she is not comfortable with the fact that the boy king, an 11-year-old child, who is actually of a similar age to Bertie, her oldest son, has been 
surrounded by enemies, separated from his mother. She's a mother at the end of the day as well. And has been, you know, treated in this way. And because she has such favorable reports of Dilip and is becoming quite obsessed with the idea of Dilip Singh, this is all very uncomfortable. And that just winds Dalhousie up. (laughs) No end. Anyway, look, she gets over it. (laughs) She takes the diamond. And they, they start to think about how to use the diamond. And you're right, they have an opportunity a year later. The Great Exhibition of 1851, the star attraction is going to be the Koenor, the rock, literally the rock star of this exhibition. And you should set this in the context of how people think about empire in, in Britain at this point. If you go to what's now the Foreign Office, what used to be the old Inder Office, at the top of one of the uh, main staircases is a fresco done by an Italian artist in the 18th century. And it's it's called India gifting her riches to Great Britain. And you have an image of Britannia taking this sort of loot mm. uh, the, the, uh, out of, a, I think, is it a gold cauldron? I think so, yeah, um, something like and, that. And there, yeah. are, there are pearls, there are diamonds, there are, and then she's pouring it. India, the figure of personification of India, is pouring it into the arms of Britannia. Mm. And without thinking it through very much. The British public very much buy into this idea oh, yeah. that, that India it's is there gift. to enrich. It's a gift yeah. from the heavens yeah. to enrich uh, this country. And the Great Exhibition is a, is a version of this. It's, it's to display the wealth of Britain. It's to display the reach of its empire, uh, the extraordinary products that are being brought in all the way from the Hudson Bay Company down to Tasmania. But at the heart of it, at the centre of the exhibition, is the Koh-i-Noor. And this is the point, really, which the Koh-i-Noor enters the British public's yeah. general uh, view. So it's an excellent build-up and it's a brilliant, and the hype and fury around it at the time in 1851 was was intense. Does it shine in the eye? Well, no, really not so much. <laughs> so it is it is placed, first of all. I, this is all Albert. We should say the Great Exhibition is Albert's brainchild. It is Albert's attempt to curry favour with the British people and as well. And he puts it in an enormous greenhouse, which is called the Crystal so, Palace. So the Crystal yeah. Palace. So, so now, look, the thing is about a Crystal Palace is that, in, and it's in Hyde Park, it's not where we think of Crystal Palace today. The Crystal Palace was this glass edifice in, in Hyde Park. Is It's just filled with glass. <laughs> it's filled with light. Now, a diamond, and can you just remind us again, we're talking about a diamond that is not a diamond as most people would know them to be cut today. So... Gem cutting technology has been hugely advanced in in Europe, and there's now very little problem at all about cutting this hardest of stones. Um, But in India still, they love the old mogul cut, which is basically leaving it more or less naive as it is, uh, uh, taking it uh, almost as it appears from the ground, and maybe giving it a little bit of a a rose cut, as it's called, a very simple uh, faceting. But the Indians have no taste yet for... Uh, what we have in Europe, which the is sparkles. called the brilliant cut, the mm-hmm. sparkles. Mm. Uh, and the Koh-i-Noor doesn't sparkle. It's just an enormous rock. Uh, brilliant and uh, and extraordinary, but it's it's not symmetrical. Uh, it doesn't sparkle. And uh, it's not what the uh, Europeans want to see uh, as, as, their, as their rock. And already, in a sense, this has been anticipated by Logan, because when he used to show people mm. uh, the Koh-i-Noor when he's in charge of the Toshikana, um, he used to make people look at the Koh-i-Noor through a peephole. Right. And he would get black velvet and get, a, I think, a very strong light coming from underneath, underneath an oil it lamp. Underneath it, too, yes. An oil lamp so that the thing exactly would sparkle right. as diamonds were meant to do, so, but, but lost in the crystal Al- palace. Albert doesn't think this through. Yeah. He puts it on a very lavish 
cushion of velvet, rich purple velvet, we're told. And, um, you know, people come and they, they look at it. First of all, actually, what they do is they go running off in the wrong direction. There's a big lump of quartz uh, in, as, as one of the exhibits. And they go, oh, the Koh-Noor. And when they're told, no, that's not it, it's over there. In comparison, the Koh-Noor is really dull. It's small and it's boring. Um, and, so, and not symmetrical. It's got it's got this dome and this tail. Yes, the Arthur's seat analogy, which or, I've always loved. I think it's fabulous. Yeah. Or <laughs> yes, the really expensive tadpole. Um, so people <laughs> go away and they're, they're very rude about it. So Albert is not happy because this is, you know, this is his reputation is on the line. So first of all, they change out the colours around it. Okay, if not purple, then dark crimson. That's not working. So he starts to put mirrors around it thinking okay that will reflect the light that doesn't work first then it's gas lamps and mirrors and that doesn't work then it's he realizes quite late in the day and quite astonishingly late in the day that it's natural light that is defeating all of these gas lamps so he builds like a wooden shed type thing around it but creating inadvertently britain's first, first sauna, sauna. <laughs> exactly you know so people go in to have a look after all this tinkering they go in to look at the Koh-i-Noor <laughs> some of them are coming out having passed out in here you know so again that curse of the Koh-i-Noor that you know looking at it is a dangerous thing but the, becomes embedded. the expectations that are built up there are queues across London there are, I think is it a, a third a of the country of the country will file through those doors of the, the crystal Park. I mean it's, it's astonishing, astonishing. Yeah. Uh, that's just even today that's crazy and to a man they look at the diamond and they go meh <laughs> it's all right it's not what they've been led to believe no so you know at the end of the great exhibition in october 1851 the 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 diamond is taken back to the tower in disgrace (laughs) um but albert's not gonna leave it there this has been a humiliation for him so you know what this errant child like the errant child who's in india who has been recut and is being reformed into this british gentleman duleep singh this diamond, too, is going to be brought into line. So what Albert does is he goes around and he asks all of his experts. He says, look, can you cut it? And they all go, no, <laughs> actually, no. He goes to David Brewster, the father of optics, a physicist in this country. He goes, can we cut it? And he says, no, it's got a fault at its heart. If you try and cut it, this thing is going to disintegrate. Do not cut it. He's advised time and again, do not cut it. But, you know, there's that saying, he who pays the piper. So he he starts casting about in in Amsterdam, where the best diamond cutters are. And he finds Moses Kuster, who's a a really renowned diamond cutter. And Moses Kuster says, what do you want to do? How much are you paying? Sure, we'll be right over. (laughs) And he says, he sends his team, his crack team of diamond cutters to England to cut the Koh-i-Noor. And they set up a, a, a sort of stall in the haymarket. It's so it's done, a workshop. Yeah, it's a, a workshop, fa- little factory, yeah. you know. And, and it's what's really interesting. This is so, I mean, so interesting. The Koh-i-Noor is so famous that even while they're constructing this sort of shared workshop around it, where they're going to use state-of-the-art diamond cutting um, tools, like things like a, a shafer, it's called a scafer. I think I'm saying it badly, but it, it's it's... A whirring round whetstone that uh, upon which you grind out the facets of a diamond. That's what they're going to use. So they're, they're assembling all of this. And there are people sort of assembled outside as if, you know, it's like a hospital bed for a, an intensive care patient. Um, but if that was exciting enough, wait till you're here. So who is going to do the first cut? They the bring in a celebrity. Cut. I mean, not just a celebrity. The celebrity. And if you want to know who that is... You have to wait for the next segment. Come back after the break.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Empire. So we finally got the Koh-i-Noor to England. Uh, it has been on in the Great Exhibition, but it has disgraced itself by not shining enough. So uh, the state-of-the-art diamond cutters have been summoned from Amsterdam. A workshop has been set up in the Haymarket. And who, Anita, has been called to do the first cut? Well, I feel like we, there should be a drum roll. <laughs> Here, live from fighting Napoleon, it is old nosy himself, the Iron Duke. It is no less than Wellington. Wellington, who as is... As seen on your five-pound note. As on your five-pound note. Um, he is, uh, at, at this time, is he eight or 79 at this time? He's like a, he's an old He's very man. old. <laughs> he's a very old man with, you know, the gnarled hands of a warrior, you know, sort of like ginger. His hands are sort of all, all you know, big twisted and old and and the diamond cutters are a bit worried by this so they well, covered I up mean, most naturally of yeah naturally they are so what they do is they think okay you know in case of a tremble this is not going to go well so they encase the whole thing in lead apart from one facet that he is going to ceremoniously grind out that first face which he then cuts and this is more or less the the, the, the duke's final act because he drops down dead shortly yeah. after he don't well he did never get to see the finished item so again oh <laughs> but can you tell us why why is it important it, it's important for the crowds who are outside haymarket oh by the way it's a hilarious thing that he turns up ignores all the crowds he hates crowds hates people <laughs> comes in does his grinding says nothing and leaves but what what is it about wellington's past wellington's ties with india that makes this so such an important thing and he wants to do it we, we from what we understand he asked to do it correct so the duke of wellington made his name in india and the duke's very first command was against tipu sultan in 1799 he was responsible for the security after the conquest of sri rangapatnam 
uh, Tipu's uh, capital. It's sometimes said in history books that he led the attack on Tipu. In fact, that's not, uh, not true. There was a guy called Harris and another guy called David Baird. And it's David Baird who famously discovers the body of Tipu and there's a famous, wonderful picture in the, in the Scottish National Gallery of this event. But um, Wellington has uh, defeated the Marathas in 1803 in the, in the Maratha War. And he famously says that they were much tougher adversaries than Napoleon. Than Napoleon. Was. Was it, is yeah. it the Battle of Versailles? Battle of Versailles, yeah. exactly. Was, yeah. was, was the, 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 the battle in which the Duke lost the most of his soldiers. He won the battle, but it was almost a Pyrrhic victory because half his troops die mm. in the battle. Anyway, he makes the cut. He then drops down dead, as mm. anyone it male associated with mm. the Kohenor seems to, seems to do. But the, the cut itself is hugely controversial. Massively so, because, you know, the, the, you know, those people who were telling Prince Albert what he didn't want to hear, that you cannot cut this thing, don't cut it. It's got a flaw. It's definitely. got a flaw at its heart. It will go up. I mean, some, some have, you know, warned him that it's like, coal, it's carbon at the end of the day. It will go up in, you know, ash. And don't do it. And it's so irregular and it's, mm. such a, it's such a mess that they, I mean, you expect to lose a little bit of your, your diamond when you cut it. But in the case of the Kohino, and I've got the figures in front of me, uh, the cut practically practically halves the Koh-i-Noor. It goes from 190.3 metric carats to just 93 metric carats. I mean, that's... I mean, just to, to halve the mass of a great diamond. So it comes out of this cut, you know, half the size it went in. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's not a, not a success, but it does sparkle. Do you, know, do you know who else is being diminished at the same time? Go back to Dulip Singh. Dulip Singh. So this is now 1842, uh, 1852. So now for the last three years, remember, since 1849, since he signed over his kingdom and the diamond, Dulip Singh has been in the care of the Logans and he has been growing up like a good little boy and pleasing them all. And goodness knows the, the trauma that he's buried deep inside because he's not seen his mother. He doesn't have any friends from his old life. He doesn't, you know, he's not the Maharaja anymore. They do this weird thing, the Logans, to try and keep him happy. They really are trying to keep him happy. But they they give him jewels from the Thorshakana, which he then has to give back. You know, so like, happy birthday, here are some jewels. But he doesn't get to keep them. He just gets to wear them to make him happy because it's what would happen when he's the Maharaja. So tragedy upon tragedy. But, you know, he's 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 thriving, they say. And he's corresponding with Queen Victoria. He's, and this yes. correspondence is becoming rather warm. It's very warm. Now, when he says... Just before his 16th birthday, I would like to see the Maharani of the world. Queen Victoria is really enthusiastic. She says, oh, God, let him come. I can't. That's exciting. <laughs> and all of her advisors, including the prime minister at the time, say, don't do it. Do not do this. Because if you show this kind of favor, it goes to these heathen princes' heads. But she does. Doesn't she won't, won't hear anything about it. She wants she to meet him. wants to meet him very much. So he comes over in 1854. And immediately is embraced within the royal family. You know, like, this is a really controversial thing. Do you remember when we, we toured in India? And I would say this to an Indian crowd and they would sort of bridle. That I think there was real love there between these two. You know, she, she was enchanted by him, by his manners and his beauty more than anything. He was really very, very beautiful. By this stage, he's how old? 
16, just before his 16th birthday. He turned 16 here. A beautiful in, in young Britain. man. Yeah. So, you know, just again, just worth almost sort of feline kind of features, you know, very fine featured, uh, narrow face, narrow forehead, very sort of distinguished aquiline nose like his mother, almond shaped eyes, fringed with very thick eyelashes, you know, beautiful deep brown eyes. You can tell why she was enchanted by him. He was a really pretty boy. Um, but he gets taken to Osborne. And he is immediately in the inner sanctum. So they start playing, you know, they play games at Osborne. All the, all the princes and princesses, they dress up and do their little plays. And he ties turbans around the boys and, and because he knows how to do it. And they wear Indian clothes and they eat Indian food. And if you've gone to Osborne, you can really see the stamp of India at Osborne House. Um, most touchingly, what he does is, and she notices this and writes about it in her diary, Queen Victoria, that he never leaves out Leopold. So Bertie and the others, they're all a bit rough and tumble. And little Leopold has haemophilia and is always left behind in all the games. But Dilip will always scoop him up and put him on his shoulders so he's not left behind. So she's struck by the enormous kindness. And they spend hours sketching each other. And if you go to Osborne as well, in the Royal Collection, there are these beautiful sketches that Victoria does of Dilip and Dilip does of Queen Victoria. So, you know... Obviously, this is going to be a happily ever after story, isn't it? Uh, but it's the Koh-i-Noor. <laughs> but it's the Koh-i-Noor. So for his, for his birthday, um, the Queen has decided in, in July 1854 that she's going to have a portrait painted of him by Winterhalter, who we've, we've spoken about before in this podcast, who's a, a great court artist, her favourite court artist. And it's going to be done in Buckingham Palace and it's going to be done in the uh, white drawing room. And, and Dilip is, is on a pedestal. In all his finery, he is dripping with pearls and emeralds and jewels. And around Ironic his neck... Ironic in the sense that the British are taking them all from him. But, well, but, yeah. they, you know, they, they lend them back for this, this <laughs> picture. And he's got it... What is really, I think, significant about the Winterhalter, and if you can look it up, do look it up, is he wears a little cameo of Queen Victoria around his throat. And he will wear one around, near his heart. And will do so for most of his life, apart from this very turbulent period where he turns viciously against Queen Victoria. Um, but this painting is being done, and during his posing of this painting, this charade is played out because Queen Victoria, you know, the diamond's been cut. I don't know if he even knows the diamond has been cut. The one thing out of all the finery, all the jewels and stuff that is absent from his arm, you know, must have felt really light without it, is the Koh-i-Noor that, as a little boy, he had strapped to his arm. Yeah, that's exactly the painting. I mean, just describe what you see in case I haven't done it justice. It has Dulip Singh as a beautiful 16-year-old with um, the beginnings of a beard, because he is only 16, yeah. although he, he's tall and commanding. Well, actually, you know, he cheated that he was actually short. But Winterhalter <laughs> cheats the perspective to make him look taller. That's, that's really, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah to make so him he's, he, he, he's wearing a, around his neck, are uh, about 10 strings of pearls, which tumble down onto his chest. There is this little cameo of Queen Victoria in the middle of all these pearls. He's got a turban on. The turban is dripping with, with mm. jewels too. And there's a, spent, a fantastic sarpesh, that's a turban ornament. And he's in sort of cloth of gold. The whole, the, the whole uh, uh, outfit is, 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 is sort of fantastically gilt from, from sort of shining gilt churidas or, mm. or pyjama bottoms, uh, golden slippers with turned up ends. He has a wonderful Sikh scimitar in his hand. 
And it's, I mean, it is quite simply one of the great portraits of, uh, of not only the Victorian period, but one of the greatest portraits to come out of uh, the British encounter with Agreed. India. And, you know, it's, and it's also the fantasy of India. You know, there's yeah. the embodiment of what India is. It is exotic and beautiful and dangerous, you know, the, the presence of the scimitar. I think that all of these things, all pictures at that time, are sort of laden with meaning. So anyway. But it, it's both, you know, it's interesting because, you know, it, yes, it's Orientalist and that they, mm. you know, they, they've done him up as he would be in, in, in court, the court that they abolished. Mm. Uh, and they've covered him with jewels, the jewels that, don't belong to him that anymore. they took from him. Mm. Um, and they make him look like a prince when he's lost his kingdom. He, yeah, he has the title. He retains Maharaja, but that's it. Um, so anyway, during this time, so Queen Victoria's been really, really nervous because the, the diamond's been cut, but she hasn't yet worn it in public because she's really fond of Dilip. I mean, like spectacularly fond of Dilip. So she doesn't want to hurt him. So she wants to know how he'll react if she does wear the diamond. So she quietly on the on the Never Never asks uh, Lady Logan, how do you think he'll react? And Lady Logan, who writes a brilliant memoir, you know, which is which is a fabulous account of the time, Lady Logan's Recollections, she says, you know, I actually didn't tell the Queen the truth. I said, oh, I'm not sure how he'll react. Whereas I knew there was no one subject that obsessed the Maharaja more. So the Queen tells Lady Logan, take him riding before we do the portrait and ask him. And Lady Logan does this. She says, you know, if you did see the Kohenor, would that be all right? And Dilip is quiet and gives a quite enigmatic reply. But it's not fury and it's not tears and it's not rage. So she reports back saying, I think it'll be okay. And then, so cut forward again to this portrait by Winterhalter being painted of this beautiful boy He's on a pedestal. He's standing in the white drawing room. Yeah, on a pedestal. And suddenly a frock-coated man comes to the door, bangs on the door, comes in with a casket in his hand. And Queen Victoria goes over and opens the casket and goes, oh, Dilip! Dilip, would you like to come and have a look at something? You might be interested. So he steps down off the dice. He has no idea what's kind of... And we know this accurately from Lady Logan, who was there in the room when it happened. And he walks over and she holds out the cone and she says breezily, <laughs> it's much changed since you last saw it. You know, half the size. Um, and he looks at it and Lena Logan describes how his face goes through an entire year of seasons as he looks at it. And everybody, like, no one can breathe. So it's, Queen Victoria then drops it in his hand. And Lena Logan's really nervous, like, what's he going to do? Because this may be too much for him. And he takes the diamond over to the open window of the white drawing room and holds it up to the light. And Lena Logan says, you know, she can't breathe because what's he, is he going to throw it out the window? He might, you know? And after what seems like an age... He comes back to Queen Victoria and says, it is me, it is to me, ma'am, a great pleasure to present to you the Kohenor. As if he has the power, as if he has the right to do anything else, but it's all she needs to hear. Because from the moment he does that, she then wears it in public. At state occasions, it will actually, in fact, after Albert dies and she puts all her other baubles away, be the one diamond she still wears with her black and Honiton lace. But that is the moment when she thinks it's okay to wear it. And she has a special fitting made for it. We've seen, yes, I've, yes. we've found the, um, the the receipts from Garrard's. You know, they make this uh, wonderful brooch setting with a really clever clip that you can pop it out and then put it in a, in a crown as well. 
So, so it can be both a brooch and and, yeah. and a standalone object of its own, uh, and and, yeah. a, and a standalone, and also be placed in in a crown. But after her death, it's never worn again by any other monarch. No, it is. It has not been worn by a monarch, but it has been worn by the queen consort ever since. So again, you know, it's <laughs> maybe they're they're not so important, and if they die, hideous death. I don't know. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying you know the story, which which I think is either Mountstuart Elphinstone or Richard Burton mm. sends to the, sends to the Queen, which is only one version of the many myths which there are. Mm. Uh, that is that the curse only affects a man. A man. Yeah, that, that's it. And, yeah. and this is the version that's accepted mm. by Queen Victoria. So whether or not the curse existed, whether or not there's any truth in it, whether or not the, whatever the curse is. This is the one that the royal family come to recognise as the truth. I'm just going to say one one little thing, because again, it's a whole other podcast maybe about Dilip Singh's life from that moment when he plops the stone. Yeah. But but just suffice to say, he may well be yet another victim of the Cohen or curse, if you Tell believe us the story, in such Because it's an things. extraordinary story. So this is the boy that was born in Lahore, the mm-hmm. one survivor of this bloodbath mm-hmm. in, in the Lahore Darbar. He's taken on Christianity, he's become an intimate of Queen Victoria. He has given, as far as he can, the throne to his new sovereign. No, so he's very much the sovereign. kind of, you know, yeah. the, the blue-eyed boy yeah. or suddenly the brown-eyed boy. Well, you know, for, for, for a long time, he remains a favourite of the court. He, he becomes... Very tragic story. ...becomes very much embittered against Queen Victoria because he suddenly, at a later point in midlife, starts to believe that he was cheated. Uh, that, how, that it is illegal, in fact, what they did to him as a minor to take him away from his mother and make him sign a contract. It is now not a contract because he was a minor when he signed it. So he starts to challenge that to the point where he says he's going to get India back and he becomes an implacable enemy of the British state. He, start, he refers to Queen Victoria as Mrs. Fagin, the receiver of stolen goods. So he has this idea that he will sail back to India and do a deal with the Tsar because the great game is afoot. And they will together pincer the British out of the north of India, that his Sikhs will rise up on his behalf and the Russians will push over and, and, and together they will squeeze out the British. Um, he doesn't get further than the port of Aden. He's, doesn't, he's not allowed to go through the Suez Canal. He is arrested with his very young family. His children are arrested. And he then becomes this sort of exile in Europe where he tries, you know, he's scrabbling around for money. He is broke. He's, he's had to sell his wonderful hall at El- Elvedon. Elvedon. I mean, he yeah. s- sells all that thinking he's going to, you know, use the money to get back to India. He fritters it away because he is a, a gambler and, um, you know, a carouser. He dumps his wife and family, which is another story. Uh, but everything he does is failed from that point on because British agents are on him like, flies so everything he does his money is pickpocketed his papers are denied the czar won't meet him and he ends up dying alone and broke in a parisian hotel it's the most tragic story oh, it's just it's yeah, unbelievable yeah. you know so shall we now talk about the role of the Kohenor in the present day, William? Because it's, you know, it may be a stone of antiquity, but it really is still this diplomatic grenade, isn't it? I mean, it's a live issue and, and things have changed and moved on since we wrote the book. It, that's absolutely right. When we wrote the book, the Kohenor had just been placed on the coffin of the Queen Mother, and people were, uh, were queuing to see uh, to see her, to pay their final respects. And there was the Kohenor glinting mm. in Westminster Hall. But no one knew what was going to happen in the future. And now we do, because um, 
King Charles III is now uh, on the throne and uh, Camilla is his queen consort and that crown will be worn at the coronation. Yeah, I know. And they've, and they've said nothing to disabuse the world of this notion that the Kona will still be in the queen consort's crown. I mean, often it is not unusual or unheard of for crowns to be sort of reconfigured or gems to be prized out and, and repositioned for every queen who takes over. They have different tastes, they have different desires. So that has happened in the past, but nobody has given anyone an inkling that this is off to Garrard's to be refashioned. So as things stand, it will still be there. And the result in India, um, William, what, what do you think? I mean, you're somebody who, who spends more time in India than I do. So when the queen died, every single Indian newspaper, every news channel, uh, uh, every documentary in India did something on the Kohinoor. And there is widespread expectation, I think, in India uh, that it will come back. Meanwhile, no one in Britain mm. even realizes that it's an issue. Uh, there's simply been no coverage of it, <laughs> that the, uh, no understanding that this is a major issue. And I think what it shows, above all, is that this diamond, which throughout its entire history has created division, bloodshed, misunderstanding, has lost none of its power, that it's, uh, it's doing it perhaps more than ever on a, on a, on a continental scale now. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly, you know, when you've got somebody who is running India at the moment, for whom this will be a, a, a coup, if he can get the diamond to come back, you know, this is, this is a man who wants to right the, the wrongs, he says, of colonialism. He renames things in India so that they divest themselves of the colonial past. What, what, a, what, a, what an impetus for him to put diplomatic and political pressure on Britain to get it back. But I don't think the, the British establishment is aware of this. Uh, and as far as the, the government is concerned, they're longing for good relations with India and, uh, and and hoping for better trade with India and so on. And at some point, I think, you know, the penny will have to drop that, that there are there are things that India wants back from Britain. Mm. You said penny, but the diamond will make a bigger thunk than that. <laughs> anyway, wherever it drops, we'll be dropping at the same time next week with another episode of Empire. So that's goodbye from me, Anita Arnand. And goodbye from me, <laughs> <laughs> oh, You're doing so well. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs>